Welcome everybody to the third and final installment in our series, All Love Everything. I'm so glad that you're here, so glad that you're leaning in, whether you're at church online, you're watching on YouTube, you're listening to this podcast. I am glad that you are here. And today, we are going to dive in as we begin by looking one more time at these powerful words, this powerful um, declaration from Grandpa John in 1 John chapter 4, Verses 7 and 8. Here's the way the scripture reads. Come on, everybody. Let's lean into this one more time. He says, let us love one another. Why? For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. If you've been journeying with us in this little, little short series, maybe, maybe you've been with us the last couple of installments, and if you haven't, these are available on our podcast, on YouTube, they're, they're available there, they're free for you to listen, to grow, to learn, to share. Um, but we've been making this statement throughout the whole of this collection of sermons that is uh, so significant to what we've been trying to do in all love everything. We've been saying that until we see God's love right, we cannot love other people right. In fact, the primary obstacle for you in loving other people, people who are easy to love and you're like, why don't I love them like I should? They're not difficult to love. And even the obstacle that is loving people who, who are difficult to love. Until we see God's love right, we can't love others right. And in this final installment, what I want to do is actually something I wasn't originally planning to do. But I want to continue some thoughts that we began to unpack in part two of this series as we bring it to a close, because I really believe just in, in my own prayer, in my own preparation for God's word delivered to you on today, and God's word delivered to you as we put a bow, if you will, on this series, that this is what we need most. And so I pray that you would lean in, and I pray you know if you missed part two, you can go back and watch it. But if you missed it, let me catch you up so that way you'll be a little up to speed for where we're about to go. We made two primary declarations. Maybe you'll know it. If you know it, maybe you could just feel so encouraged that seven days later or three days later, whenever you're listening, or 20 minutes later, if you just got done watching it, like that you, that you remember. And, you know, we made two primary declarations. The first was this, is that love isn't said, it's seen. Love is not something we say. That's what we think. I love you. I love you so much. <laughs> I know people that they're very quick, like, love droppers in the say, you know? They're running around all the time. I mean, I love you, man. I love you so much, man. And it's like, it does not hit on a level. There are people who never out of their mouth will tell me that they love me. But the truth is by their actions and their demeanor and their faithfulness and their concern for me or my life, like, I feel it because love isn't said, it's seen. And if we're going to demonstrate God's love to other people, it has to be that demonstrated, not just communicated. The second reality that we said, because we understood that love isn't said, it's seen. But we also said that love isn't simple, it's sacrifice. That love is not always something that's simple to do. Love is sacrificial on a level. Love might cost you some, might cost you more than you expected when you got involved in helping, when you got involved in the mission, when you got involved in being concerned about what's going on in their life. Because love isn't said, it's seen. That means we do love. And love isn't simple, it's sacrifice. That means that love is going to cost us something. 
But the common and logical pushback to these realities happens when we start <laughs> to apply these things to people who are difficult to love. Or maybe even defined by us as being impossible to love. I know you got people in your life that you say, there's no way I can love them. Come on, I know some of you got people in your life that you say, there ain't no way I could ever love them. Ain't no way. Do you know how they talk? Do you know how they, do you know where they, I get it. But I need you to understand, because this is just a continuation, so I ain't about to warm you up. I hope you came in warm. Like, if you find someone you cannot love, hear me, that says less about them and more about how you see love. If you find someone, if you think through your circle of friends, if you think through your family, if you think through your coworkers, if you think through the people that, that, that are a part of that organization with you, if you think about the people in your class, if you think about the people in your dorm, if you think about the people on your block, and you say, I can't love them. Do you know what they do? Do you know how they are? Do you know what they say? Please understand, that doesn't say near as much about them. It says way more about how you see love. Now, I understand before you push back that some people are vampires, at least relationally, <laughs> and they suck. That's just what they do. They suck the life out of you. They come alongside and it's like every time they bite into some of your time, every time they bite into some of your schedule, every time they bite into some of your emotional energy, that they just <sighs> the life out of you. I get it. but we're still supposed to love them. How? How do we love people that quite honestly, when we're around them, they drain us? How do we love people that quite honestly, when we get around them, we almost feel like our spirit is lessened. Come on, our faith diminishes. That they always got something they complain about. They, they, they always got something they ain't happy about. They, they, they ain't never had a good day. They ain't never can be positive. It's like, woe is me all the time. How do we love them? What if loving others has less to do with how we see them and more to do with how we see God's love to us? What if our ability, what if the capacity in you and in me to love other people had a lot less to do with what's going on with them and a whole lot more to do with how we see God's love towards us. Because what a lot of us will do, what a lot of us will say, particularly the people of faith, is we'll just say, well, I guess I'll love them because I'm supposed to love everybody. God said I'm supposed to love everybody, so I guess I'll love them. I don't even like them, but I guess I'll love them. I guess I can do that. I can love them and not like them. See, that's the issue. Because you think you love out of rule instead of out of relationship. Please write this down if you're taking notes today, because today I must take you on a journey. Maybe with a lot fewer tactile, write this down, bullet this, one, two, three, A, B, C. And something that I want to change the way you think. But we do not love others because they're good. We love others because we're gods. We are his people. We are the image bearers of who he is in this world. We are, like Paul would say one place, Christ ambassadors. He is making his appeal to the whole world through us. That's who we are. So we do not love others because they're good. 
They may be good, they may not be good. They may be easy to love, they may not be easy to love. That is not the reason as to where we decide whether or not we will extend love or withhold love. We love others because we are God's. See, I want to tell every person, listen to me right now. Every, whether you are a church person or not, whether you are a person of faith or not, I need you to understand something. That you are so loved by God. Do you know that? Do you know that you, right here, right now, this moment in time, you are loved by God? Not the future version of you is loved by God. Not the cleaned up version of you is loved by God. Not the sober version of you is loved by God. Not the I got my stuff in order version of you is loved by God. But you, right where you are, you are loved by God. In fact, if you know that, would you just say that? I, I know, I know, I may not be able to hear you right now, but I can hear you in my heart. Come on, you in your apartment right now. Come on, you watching this in your car. Come on, you listening to this podcast on a wall. Come on, some of you gathered around a TV in a living room. Would you just say this with me? Say, I am so loved by God. Come on, say it again. Say, I am so loved by God. Come on, one more time, just so you believe it. I am so loved by God. That is a true reality and a powerful reality that in itself has some astonishing implications. There are some astounding realities on the other side of the fact that you are so loved, that I am so loved by God. Now, I don't know if you know me, but um, I'll tell you this about me. I, uh, I don't get visibly mad very often. Like, I'll get frustrated like anybody will get frustrated, but I'm talking about, like, I'm not the, I'm going to yell at you, I'm going to throw things. I've always thought that looked a little weird, and to be quite honest, I, I, like, worked it out of me when I was playing golf in high school because I found that, you know, I'd get mad and throw things and whatever, and that didn't turn into good golf. And so I learned, even in that, like, how to control. And, and so even to this day, like, that's just not, that's just not me. But if you want to see the ugly side of me, you, you want me to use these words not for good, but for evil, or at least at least, at least to tear you down. Like if you, if you want to see uh, these hands get put on something like. Then talk bad about people that I love. Do something hurtful or harmful to people that I love and you will get the full uh, hood mic experience, if you will. Like, like you ain't going to get soft, gentle, pat you on the head, pray for you. Pass no, no, no. You will get full on like, let's go outside and handle this. Because when you start talking about people that I love, it bothers me. And you want to take it to the highest level? Say something about my wife. Say something about my son. And they ain't got to worry with it because, baby, we're going to handle this. But I can remember one time, this was several years ago, uh, my son was real little. We, uh, at Thanksgiving, decided to go to Dallas, Texas. We went to Dallas because we had lived there for many years, but we went to Dallas because at that particular time, he was still having some, um, some heart uh, procedures and checkups and examinations, and we were just choosing to do them still in Dallas. Dallas is 
seven-hour drive or so from here. And so it wasn't too terribly far. We only had to go once or twice a year. So we just decided for a period of time, we're going to continue to do this there because he had had a lot of heart issues and surgeries and procedures early on. And we wanted to stay in that same world, same doctor, same all this kind of stuff. So we decided uh, because he had a, 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 a procedure a little, and a little checkup thing that had to happen, uh, we decided at Thanksgiving to schedule it and to go. And so we spent that Thanksgiving in Dallas, Texas. And we have a bunch of friends in Dallas, had a bunch of friends there at that time, but we kind of wanted to stay low because we didn't really know how Tucker was going to do. We didn't know if he might end up being in the hospital for, for overnight, or we didn't know if uh, he wouldn't be feeling well. And we didn't want to, you know, get people scheduled and get them out of the house, and it's a holiday. So we just said, you know, we're going to kind of come in incognito, and if everything's cool, cool, and everything's not, then, then we've got the, the pliability to lean in. And so that's, that's what we did. But we also made plans thinking, hey, everything might go just fine, and we're going to be there on Thanksgiving, and we got to eat. And so my wife made a reservation at this, this Italian place that we love because they were one of the few places open on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, we went to uh, a place called Maggiano's. I don't know if you ever heard of Maggiano's or seen one of them driving around. They're, they're all over the place. There's one in Nashville, Dallas, all stuff. But Maggiano's, it's an Italian spot, and we love it. We love it. It's great, it's great, great food. And they opened at 11 o'clock, and she was able to get a reservation for 11 o'clock because she knew that our son did not do well waiting around. He was getting older, but um, he was having a tough time communicating sometimes how he felt, especially if he didn't feel good. He didn't have the language to put with this hurts and that hurts. And a lot of times he would cry, even though you would look at him physically and think, well, he ought to be able to just be telling you specifically all the stuff that's going on. That just wasn't the case for him. And so we made this, this reservation and everything had gone well the day before with his uh, appointments and procedures. stuff. So we went to Maggiano's ready to ready to eat. We go into this Maggiano's, and we've been to this Maggiano's many, many times and uh, uh, had a lot of incredible memories there, Christmas parties, all this kind of stuff uh, at this Maggiano's. So we went in and we were excited. We had our reservation. We go in and tell them that we're there. And they say, oh, it's going to be a minute. And we say, that's fine. Problem is, when they said a minute, they, they, they didn't mean a minute. <laughs> they meant like, like, like forever. And for whatever reason, our son started not feeling well. And again, didn't really have the capacity to be able to communicate in words what was hurting and what wasn't going on good. And so he just kept yelling and crying and whining. Now, this restaurant, it's, it's not like fancy, but it's like nicer, you know, like, like it's not McDonald's, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and so like they have a certain hmm about themselves. And so when Tucker starts crying, Mindy takes him like over to the kind of side to, to try to console him, try to figure out what's going on. Because again, he just has a hard time communicating at that age um, what was hurting, what wasn't feeling good, why he was disgruntled. And she's trying to handle that. But, but my, my boy has lungs, <laughs> like big lungs. He gets that from his father. And, and, and he, like you could hear him everywhere. Problem is, uh, there were two things not happening at the same time. He wasn't feeling any better. And our table wasn't getting anywhere near more open because we thought, like, maybe he's just hungry. You know what I'm saying? It's Thanksgiving. We hungry. We probably like, let's go eat. And, and so 10 minutes late turned into 20 minutes late, turned into 30 minutes late, turned into 40 minutes late. And 10 minutes of crying turned into 20 minutes of crying, 30 minutes of crying, 40 minutes of crying. And, like, he hollering. I'm frustrated because they ain't got our table ready, even though we made a reservation. And that wasn't the biggest problem. 
The biggest problem was my wife is over here trying to console our son. I'm over here trying to watch the little host people and listen for as soon as they're going to call our name so we can get back there and maybe get some water, get some food, get some bread, get something into our boy so he'll maybe, maybe that's the issue. And the whole time I overhear their host and hostesses, the manager, the wait staff, talking bad about my son. Not just the fact that he's crying, not just the fact that he's making noise in their establishment, but criticizing him. They don't know his strengths and his weaknesses. They don't know the things that may have been taking a little extra time for him, some developmental delays. And they are literally talking bad about my wife and my son and the fact that he's that big and won't just talk this thing and all this kind of stuff. And I heard it and I digested it. And I heard more of it and I digested it. And it got to the point where I couldn't handle this any longer. And so I walked myself up to and I asked what's going on, where our reservation is. They're so, they said, we're so sorry. We're getting it as soon as we can. And I said, no, you're not sorry because you've spent the entire time that we've been waiting over here complaining about my son and my wife. And that bothers me. So I said, we out. I said, come on, talk, come on, Minnie. And we got out and we left. They tried to apologize. I said, oh, well, we're so sorry. We didn't, we didn't mean it. It's just, you know, it's, it's a lot going on. I said, you are not sorry. I said, we don't want to be in some place where we are not wanted. So we left. We had Thanksgiving dinner at Whataburger. It was wonderful. <laughs> but they, uh, they missed a very important reality when you were complaining about people that I love. Because if you are going to criticize them, you cannot change the fact that you criticize them with coming to me and talking about how, uh, uh, how much you love me. You can tell me you love me, but if I hear you talking bad about people that I love, we have problems. You can, you can bring money to me and be like, here, here sir. But if you talk bad about people that I love, can I tell you that doesn't make up for the fact of what you are doing and what you are saying and what you don't understand. You could sing songs in my honor, have banquets. You could create a space for me and say, this is for you, sir. But if you have criticized those that I love, you've missed the point because that's my kid. And as a parent, maybe some of you that are parents will understand this. It is unfathomable for me, for you to tell me that you like me, to tell me that you love me and be unloving to my kid. But people do it to God constantly. We are all his children, but yet we want to walk into his presence and tell him how much we love him, while out of the same mouth we've done nothing but criticize his children. We want to walk in and, and think that somehow we can give God money, and that's going to make up for the fact that we have been disparaging, that we have been hateful, that we have been anything but loving to his children. We want to sing songs about him, and it's wonderful. The problem is out of that same mouth that we sing praises to God, we have offered curses to his children. And I think sometimes God might sit in heaven and wonder why and how out the same mouth this could happen because those are my kids. 
Can I tell you, nothing honors God more than loving his kids. But that's not what most people practice. Most people think that the honoring thing for God is something to do with themselves. The honoring thing that God wants to see from you and from me is love for all his kids. Paul addresses this in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the greatest theological manifesto uh, written in human history. And the Apostle Paul writes this great theological work to a very conflicted relational group of people. He writes it to the church in Rome, but the church in Rome was made up of a uh, conglomeration of people who had a lot of different value systems. There were Jews there that lived in Rome because Rome was sort of the, you know, it was the epicenter of the world. It was the Washington DC, if you will, of that time, but on steroids. That was the superpower, the seat of power for the whole world. And there were Jewish people who followed Jesus who lived there. There were Gentile people who followed Jesus who lived there. There were people of different, well, kind of coming into this thing. And while they theologically may be coming into alignment, while they may sing praises and give money and serve together, they, they had some problems because um, Jewish people did not do things that Gentile people did. And Gentile people did not like being called less than by Jewish people simply because they were following something that they had never even heard about. And Paul brings this up in a portion of the book of Romans that I want to draw your attention to today. It's the book of Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Let's read these verses, and then there are going to be some words and some references to things in here that may not make sense, but give me a second, and I'm going to explain those, and we're going to do work. If you're ready, somebody in that chat, just type, I'm ready. Paul says, telling them, let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, some of you may be hearing this and have the very obvious question, what is the law? Well, prior to Jesus, the law was the standard. In fact, what we refer to as the Old Testament was often called the law and the prophets. It was the prophetical writings. It was the prophetical records, as well as what was the law of God through Moses. Specifically, this law was comprised of 613 Mosaic laws, 613 different things that you need to do these things and not do those things because these were the right things and they brought honor to God. But the law, like any law, created the opportunity for loopholes, misinterpretation, and misrepresentation. This is why Jesus regularly said, you've heard it said in the law. You've heard it said by people trying to teach you the law. But now I tell you, so why then does the law matter here? If Jesus has already come when Paul is writing this, and he has, Jesus has already come, lived, died, resurrected, people are now following his law. Why does the law matter here? Because Paul is writing to people who are just like him. People who were trying and failing to fulfill the law. 
people who had taken the law and sort of assimilated it broadly and followed its model that was utterly hopeless and ineffective. Model? What do you mean by model? Well, really from the beginning of time until now, there have been three models that have sort of appeared concerning worship. These are not necessarily scholastic terms, but just work with me. I think they're a little more understandable for us. There is what's called a sacred model. A sacred model follows this idea, and not just in Christianity, but in other religions. You will even find this very prevalent in most other religions. Islam, you will find this. Hinduism, you will find this. Buddhism, you will find this. That there are sacred places. This place is holy. This place is special. In the sacred model, you will find sacred texts. This book is holy. These writings are holy. Sacred men who control things. Followers who act right. And Israel followed this model. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, they all followed this sacred model. And then Jesus comes and introduces what we will call the Jesus model. Where there is a new covenant. Not the old covenant, a new covenant. He gives a new commandment, a new command I give to you. Love one another. Come on, part two, you remember that. Come on, this is a continuation. Love one another. There was a new ethic. There was a new movement. And literally the church that Jesus started was like this for the first 350 years. They didn't have sacred places. They didn't have places at all. <laughs> they didn't have necessarily special people. They didn't necessarily have special writings. You know what they had? They had an example that they followed and they were walking this thing out together and they said, we are going to do what Jesus showed us how to do, the Jesus model. And then somewhere around the late fourth century, this changed into what I would call the sacred Jesus model. That's when we have the Bible as we know it, codified and canonized. That is when Christianity became an official religion. Some of you will be familiar with Constantine and his uh, his implementation of Christianity as the official religion of his domain. This intensified, though, with the Protestant Reformation. And Christi Christianity became less Jesus model and more about sacred places, sacred texts, people in control, and people in control trying to get other people to act right. Can I tell you something today for those of you that may not be all that interested in my quick church history lesson? Please understand that church and faith and Christianity, as you have probably experienced them, even if you've only experienced a glimmer of it in your life, follows this sacred Jesus model. You don't believe me? <laughs> Think about the word church. The word church is not a foreign word to you. I don't care whether you're a person of faith or not. You have thoughts that come into your mind when you think about church. And I bet when you think about church, what you think of is a building. Why? Etymology. Because the English word church comes from a German word that literally means building. The interesting thing is we have in our scriptures Jesus saying, I will build my church. When he said he would build his church, he was not saying, I will build a building. He actually was saying in Greek, I will build an ecclesia. I will build a people who will gather and bear out my name and live this out. An ecclesia is nothing more than a gathering of people. When he says, I'm going to build a church, I'm going to build a gathering of people so powerful and so, so transformative that are going to operate in every sector of society. And they're going to love people who are unlovable and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to live my way wherever they go. But yet we hear church and we think of an address. We hear church and we think of times at a building. We, we hear church and we think of maybe 
sacred writings. <laughs> that wasn't Jesus' vision. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, though, because you love Jesus and you're, you're, you're faithful uh, Jesus followers, your church goers, online, in person, whatever. You, you are a person who believes in this stuff. You say, what's the issue? Here's the issue. And please walk with me. Again, I'm taking you on a journey today. I'm going to come up into your neighborhood, but we got to take a journey to get there. I'm going to take you on a scenic route, but I promise you I'm dropping you in your living room. The issue is this can make things about God, hear me, more significant than people God loves. This sacred Jesus model, which many of us have been indoctrinated to, in, and by, can make things about God more significant than people God loves. You don't believe me? Let's test it. Please don't respond out loud if there are people around you. Please don't even respond in the chat if you're at church online. Please respond internally. But if you've ever felt more guilty about missing a service, a church service, than you do about how you treat people, that's sacred model. That's a sacred model. If you've ever felt more guilty because I didn't go to service and I should have, more than you did about the fact that you were not loving to one of God's kids, a kid that you like or a kid that you don't like. A kid you get along with or a kid you don't get along with. Someone that you've known for a long time or someone you just met or someone you hardly even know. If you felt guiltier about missing a service because somebody said this time at this place is what matters in your devotion to God. More than how you treat one of God's kids. That's sacred. And if you don't believe me, believe Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if you have aught with your brother or sister and you're on your way to church, take your offering, leave it at church, and go get right with your brother or sister. And once you're right with your brother or sister, then come back and worship God. What's, that? what's, what's he saying? He's saying, listen, if there's, if there's separation, if you have hurt, if you have grieved, if you have been unloving, if there is distance between you and one of your brothers or sisters, that matters. Take your offering, put it in a yellow box, and you will get that junk right. And if you can make it back and sing a song, sing a song. But you get that thing right. Some of you, this sounds so foreign. That's because what you've been handed and indoctrinated with probably some, if not all, of your life, whether directly because you were a part of a church or indirectly because you ran from a church that tried to propagate a sacred model on you and they were more concerned with the quality of their pews and the, and the protection of their property than they were the people in their proximity. See, the sacred model is about you getting God good with you, which makes all of this faith thing all about you. The problem with that is you miss the core tenet of faith that we have. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Once you place your faith in Jesus, please hear me. God is good with you. 
When you receive his free gift of salvation, his grace by your faith, God is good with you. You are, come on, this was part one in this series. Some of y'all need to just go rewind, watch this whole jump when we're done. Like, you are covered and you are covered for good because God loves you. Once you place your faith in him, baby, you're covered. You're good. You are loved by God. So if my faith then isn't about the betterment of me or getting more for me, or getting God to love me more. He can love you more. He gave all that he could. Then who's my faith for? Write this down. The sacred model is all about you. But the Jesus model is all about others. The sacred model, as I am loosely calling it today, is all about you. That's why some people uh, were so obsessed with following the law because they wanted to appear righteous. Paul says, you missed it. You missed it. Because the Jesus model is all about others. The entire law, Paul says and Jesus says, are fulfilled in this command. Love others like Jesus did. That's it. I know some of you, this bothers you because your religious training, your, 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 your self-righteous understanding needs to have all these rules and all these letters and all these things. And, and you're a little higher because you did this and they're a little lower because they don't do that. And so this makes you better and see how it's all about you. See, the Jesus model is far less complicated than the sacred model. But it's far more demanding. It's far less complicated. Love others like Jesus. Not 613 laws. Not some verses you're trying to take out of context to hold over somebody's head. Love others like Jesus did. See, it's easier to make it about the lists and the rules. Because if I follow all the rules, then I'm good. And my faith is good. And everything's fine with me. But Jesus' model says, a new command I give you. Love as I have loved you. And then Jesus is the one who says, what Paul then reiterates in Romans, all the law, all the prophets literally hang on these two commands. Some of you are <laughs> struggling because you're like, but what about all the verses? And what about all the morals? And what about all the rules? And what about all the stuff? Truthfully, most people look to the rules, to the verses, to the commands, looking for loopholes rather than reasons to love. Folk want verses to be their confirmation, not their correction. Most people, when they go to the scripture, they're looking for the scripture to tell them what they already thought rather than for it to correct them in how they love others. The Jesus model is um, far less complicated, but far more demanding. Because a lot of us would like to be indoctrinated and entertained with, with teachings 
that will get us lost because it's a little too confusing, rather than something so clear, so tactile, so every day, so every body, that literally it affects everything. Because we want our faith to be a Sunday proposition, or at least a some Sunday proposition. Don't, don't, don't expect me to be here every week. But when I do come, that's what my faith will be about. And we don't want our faith to be about those uh, clients that we have at work. We don't want our faith to be about the people that walk into your office that rubbed you the wrong way. We don't want our faith to be about people that we bump into on the street that we view as shady. We don't want our faith to be about people that we know are criminals. We don't want faith to be about people that we know have hurt us. We don't want faith to be about people that get on our last ever-loving nerve. But the problem is that's what Jesus led us to. All the law, all 613 of them, all the prophets, everything they were trying to say when they said, come back to God. Hang on these two commands. A love for God demonstrated in a love for people. See, consistent love demands more than complicated lessons. The problem for many people of faith is we have become too well adjusted to being talked to and thinking us being talked to and feeling better or worse about how we kept the rules. And we call that faith. When faith is love as I have loved you. And if you don't think this is you, if you don't think you're one affected by this reality, may I ask you a few questions concerning how you get to doing what is the right thing? Why should someone tell the truth? Think about that. Why should someone tell the truth? Should I tell the truth because the Bible says so? Or because when I lie, I hurt the person I lie about and to? You should tell the truth. And the Bible tells you to tell the truth. But what if the why was bigger? What if the reason the Bible tells you to tell the truth it's because the Bible understands, because it is the word of God with the breath of God in it and through it, understands that you are hurting other people when you don't tell the truth. Why should you be generous? Because the Bible tells you to? Because the Bible tells you that when you are generous, God will bless you with more. Or because when I'm generous, it helps other people when I'm generous. When I'm generous... Through my local church, people who can't afford to give are able to receive ministry. They're able to receive the gospel. People who couldn't afford their groceries are able to get groceries because I gave. Why should I be generous? See, most people only want to be generous so they can check off the rule or check into the blessing. What if the reason God has told us to be generous is because that's what's loving to others? Why should I forgive? Because the Bible tells me to. Jesus told us to forgive. Why should I forgive? Because it helps my heart because I just feel so at peace 
when I forgive, and I don't want to live under that shame. I don't want to live under that condemnation, so I'm going to forgive. I'm going to remember what Corey Tim Boone said, and it's not the one who, uh, who did the, the wrong who needs to forgive. It's the one who was wronged on because you got to set a prisoner free, and that prisoner is me. Or do I forgive? Because if I don't, I make loving them impossible. I can't love people that I don't forgive. Some people, the loving thing that they need from you today is forgiveness that can only come from you. But the problem is you have reasons and verses as to why you hang on to your unforgiveness. But you're making a relationship with them impossible. And you're making love from you impossible. Why? Because you're so concerned with you being loved by God. You are so loved by God. And if you're concerned with being loved by God, and you're not concerned about being loving to others, you've missed Jesus' point completely. Because you don't love his kids. You don't love his kids. You want his love to you and for you. But you don't love his kids. You missed his point altogether. Because if you are saved, you are loved. If you have received his free gift of salvation, you are so loved. Greater love has no person than this, than they would lay down their life for a friend. This is what Jesus has done for us. But if you are loved, which many of us are, many people listening, many people watching, you fall into that group that says, I am loved. That's great. Are you loving? Are you one who demonstrates the love that you've received? You need to stop trying to get God to look after you and start looking after people he loves. Because your faith can't only be about you. Can I take it further as we end today? Can I take it further and just push all the chips right up into the middle of the table and help you to realize how seriously God takes what I'm telling you? You aren't right with God if you treat people wrong. I just said it. I didn't even want you to write it down in your blank, but some of you need to make your own blank and write it down. You are not right with God if you treat people wrong. You say, preacher, that sounds a little... If you've joined us every installment of this series, all three, this is the third one, every week we have read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. May I read to you verse 8 again? Verse 8 of 1 John chapter 4 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 25, after telling a story you're probably familiar with, the parable of the talents, which has this stand before God, give an account for your life tone to it, because that's part of what it's about. He follows it by explaining at the end of time what things will look like. 
He literally begins this, this, this explanation by saying there will be a day when God is in all of his glory. Not, not thinly veiled as we see him now. Not, not, not hiding some of it from us because no person can be in his presence and live. But when God is revealed in all his glory, Jesus says, with all of his angels surrounding him. Jesus says he's going to look out on all people. And separate them to the right and to the left. The sheep and the goats. And Jesus says, read it for yourself, Matthew chapter 25, the second half. Jesus says that the determining factor between whether you go to the right or the left were those who cared for people and those who didn't. You may have heard it like this. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was lost and you gave me direction. When, Lord, did we do these things to you? We never saw you. Well, you've done it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters. You've done it unto me. You didn't. Feed me. But I was hungry. You didn't clothe me and I was naked. You didn't give attention to my need and I had need that I told you about. When Jesus did you come by, we didn't see you. When you ignored the least of these, you ignored me. Whoever does not love does not know God. All the law, all the prophets, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't covet. Love your neighbor enough not to want their stuff so bad that you take it. Honor your father and mother. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commands. You see, the proof of your love for God is your love for people. Not how many verses you've memorized that you don't apply. <laughs> not, not, not how much you appear to do, but a lot of it's just smoke and mirrors because your heart's not in it. The proof of your love for God is your love for people. And so the question as I drop you off at your house today, the question as I now walk into your living room, as I walk into your relationships, as we close this time together and really put a stamp on what this whole series is about, is for you to walk away with one single question that I pray would be um, a reminder to you every day of your life. You can write this in your notes if you'd like, but more than write it in your notes, I'd love for you to write it on your heart as a question that you ask yourself with every interaction, as a question that you ask yourself with every conversation, as a question that you ask yourself with people that are easy to love for you and people that suck the life out of you. What does love require of me? What does love require? That part, what does love require of me to them? What does love require of me in that situation? What does love 
require me. And before you think that sounds too airy and pithy and light and easy, and you're like, no, you need to hit them with a verse, preacher. How about one of them? What you don't understand is all of the verses, all of the commentary, all of the conjecture is trying to get you to love one another. That's the reason we give. That's the reason that, that lust is such a terrible thing. Not because you uh, have done something just to you, but you are being unloving towards someone or someone's spouse or someone's boyfriend, someone's girlfriend. You are. What does love require of me? Before you think the answer to this question is easy, remember the answer to this question cost God his son. The answer to this question cost Jesus his life. Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. But not what I want, what you want. What does love require of me? Can I tell you the answer to this? will change the city. People love to talk about the problems in our city, and we have problems. But I believe if people of faith did not just have a faith that stopped at the conclusion of a Sunday service, but had a faith that was so strong and so determined that they would live out every day, every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, every Thursday, every Friday, every Saturday, every Sunday, every morning, every noon, every night, every stranger, every friend, every relative. What does love require of me here? I would talk differently. I would love differently. I would serve differently. I would help differently. I would invite differently. I would be different because I would respond Jesus showed us to respond. So in these upcoming weeks, we're going to be sharing a lot of opportunities for us as a church to love those who are around us in significant ways. But can I tell you one of the greatest things that you could do even this week is be a bringer. Bring people to God's house online and in person. Be someone who takes it upon yourself to recognize that the most loving thing I could do to anyone is to introduce them to the God who loves them, who can and will change their life. So this week, come on, even online, there are going to be invites that tell people this thing I've told you today. You are so loved. Would you share that this week? Come on, would you pick up the phone and call friends and say, you need to join me for church online. You need to join me in person. You need to be there. And let's saturate our community with the love of God, not just being people who say we love, but who demonstrate it. Because love requires a demonstration. Let's pray. God, I love you. Thank you for today. God, I pray you fill your people with your love to an overflowing measure so that they would walk and live this love out. Help us to love people that are easy and love people who are difficult. Help us to be true examples of your love, your grace to others. God, help us to recognize that 
Loving one another is what you have called us to do. So give us the strength and the power to love everyone we come in contact with. For the honor of your great name. We love you, Jesus. We pray that we demonstrate that and how we live. And all God's people said, amen.